Bob, I'd like an apology for you well actually me and being incorrect. <laughs> to start off my Monday. Cal did skip the, the post-game radio show. Yes, it looks like that's that's the deal. We had the uh, uh, the RTI guys were up in Lexington covering the game, and we had seen some quotes from Calipari on uh, RockyTopInsider.com, so I asked the question, where did those come from if he skipped the presser? And uh, Shumpert clarified it wasn't the presser, it was actually the radio show that he, uh, you know, similar to what they do with uh, Coach Barnes here, where he's out on the court afterwards and, talks to uh usually the the play-by-play announcer so uh that's the clarified point there so he skipped part of it not all of it but it's still got people talking up there a faint where is cal was heard over the radio according to one of the ksr guys really the fans stayed there chanting heckling him for not showing up on the court it was the best I can describe it, just a full team performance, complete. It wasn't the Dalton Connect show. I thought he was fine. But it was everyone else that looked locked in and did a lot of good things for the team. I thought everyone that played, played well. It was... Did you have a moment where you were watching and thought, is this really happening I mean, think the first. I mean, the first minute of the game, three pointers from Josiah and Zakai, like right off the bat, and and then you looked at the. I don't know what the numbers were at this point. I don't have them in front of me, but at halftime, I kept calling them the OGs, and I kind of included Zakai in there. You know, it really meant Santi and Triple J, but Zakai had such a rough game on Tuesday night. I was grouping those three together, they had more points scored in the first half than they did collectively in that South Carolina game. And um, and then ended up with, for the game, 63 points, 10 three-pointers, 11 rebounds, 16 assists, 5 steals, shot 20 of 33 from the field, and only three turnovers between the three of them. I mean, that was so great to see. I'm so happy for both Santiago and Josiah, that that's how they leave Rupp Arena. They leave Rupp Arena with a winning record, correct? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Connect, did Connect, there was chatter on social media about it. Any thoughts? Did he look, some people thought he looked a little fatigued, a little tired. Did you feel any of that? See any of that? I didn't notice it. Uh, it was one of those situations where the rest of the team was playing so well that Connect just. He had a, you know a couple of those backdoor cuts and dunks out of bounds, and you know he looked fresh on those. I thought you know his jumper looked a little broken. I mean, it was one of five from three and five of fourteen. You know, just overall, I thought he had the one nice drive and one mm-hmm. in the first half, but outside of that, didn't really do much. I didn't think he looked fatigued as much as just didn't look didn't look locked in or didn't didn't look. To be successful offensively. I kind of thought maybe after that one uh, drive attempt in the first half where he was, you know, he he was driving to the right, and then I think he went up and tried to dunk on that Onyenso kid, and he blocked him. He kind of came down weird. Like, it seemed like he almost kind of, like, jammed his knee a little bit or something like that. Like, I don't know. It it didn't really seem like he was affecting him all throughout the game, but I did kind of wonder watching the game back if that might have had a little something to do. I mean, at at the very least, it might have – Affected the confidence a little bit. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Because I, I did think around that time, 
you know, the eight-minute mark of the first half or so, like, you know, Kentucky was making a push, and Connect had a couple moments down the block where he, was, he wasn't getting foul calls. Mm-hmm. Like, he wasn't getting a foul call. Not so much on that block. I don't think that was a foul. But there was another one where he had a block, and he was – he was coming up uh, trying to shoot a little six-foot jumper, and the guy kind of undercut him, and he didn't get the foul call on that, and he kind of looked at the ref and was mad. And it was clear that Kentucky was going to try to make an example out of him and try to rough him up a bit, and the refs weren't <coughs> letting them – or the refs were letting them, weren't calling fouls, and, you know, the rest of the offense was flowing so well that it kind of made him – I don't want to say obsolete because I do think he still drew so, so much attention coming around screens and taking their best defender that opened things up, but – no, I, I didn't. I didn't particularly think. Wow, this guy looks fatigued. He uh, that that corner jumper he hit off the inbounds play was that was the one. Boy, that looked elite. Just how he extended the shot looked great. The other thing that he did that was most satisfying for me was uh, Saturday. Uh, Adu Tierro made some comments about. Yeah, we know who he is. He's going to have to work. Yeah, work his ass off. I'm paraphrasing, but it, that was the message. He's going to have to work his ass off to get that against us. And that first inbounds dunk was on Tierra, which was nice. Felt good. They were talking a little bit throughout the game, too. Yeah. When I was watching, when I was watching it back, I saw Tierra and, and Connect yeah. kind of drawing a little bit. Yeah. And um, he went five for five from the free throw line. I won't say that any of those had to be clutch free throws. Kentucky, you know, at, at one point, I think maybe if I was Coach Cal, would have looked and said, hey, let's quit fouling because we just gave them – 10 free points to let them break 100 that makes this loss look way worse. Like, we're not coming back. Let's maybe quit fouling them. Unless I'm just trying to make the free throw discrepancy look big so I can point to that and say, hey, they shot more free throws than us. At home, the ref screwed us. Because I was like, they're really extending this game. You don't really see that in the regular season too often in college basketball. That's more of a conference tournament, NCAA tournament thing where you just foul, foul, foul for a minute and a half. But, yeah, Connect went 5 for 5 from the free throw line which was nice to see after, you know, some timely misses on Tuesday night against South Carolina. But the story of the game, Josiah and Zakai both with 26 points. Zakai with as good of a point guard performance as you'll see in college basketball this year, if not really just like ever. Ever, you know, is a bit, you know, hyperbolic, of course, but like, there are no Tennessee performances in the regular season that I could point to that I could say has been better from a point guard's perspective. There's none in college basketball that I've seen this year, unless I'm missing somebody. Zakai, who struggled mightily you know, on Tuesday, came out, set the tone early, and yeah, 26 points and 13 assists. That's, that's about as good as you can do in college basketball. To do that in 33 minutes as well. When I was rewatching the game yesterday... There was like 12 minutes left in the game, and he only had seven assists. So, like, he got six just kind of over the next 10 minutes to close the door on Kentucky and kind of put the game away. And, you know, that was impressive. He was so locked in, he had an assist to himself for a big bucket on a blocked alley-oop. He caught it and beat the shot clock. That's how locked in he was in his passing. I thought that that was for sure in the second half as important a play as there was in the entire game. I think there was one in the first half, too. Um that I'll elaborate on in a minute and get your guys' thoughts. But Zakai, he, I mean, just absolutely. I, I felt he was the best player on the court that night. I mean, Josiah had a great game, but Zakai looked like he was, on a couple occasions, those times where there was one time he 
handling the ball, dribble, 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 kind of went down to the middle. Tobey was in there. That's another guy we need to talk about. Cleared out a path for him, and it just looked like it was like a layup drill. It was it was just everything felt easy for him after what we saw on Tuesday night. It was great to see. No, I thought that was the best game of Tobey Awaka's Tennessee career. Now there might be some better, you know, statistically, but I thought he set the tone for that runaway in the second half. I mean, him coming in and just getting Kentucky so frustrated, you know, grabbing two offensive rebounds, I think on like three possessions over two people at Kentucky. Like didn't have the didn't have position, wasn't boxed out, they weren't given to him. It was just uh I'm going to go get the ball. I'm going to be more physical. I'm going to get the ball. And then of course you know what happened where he had them so frustrated. He had one guy try to hit him from the back. One guy try to grip the ball for him from the front. A guy try to kiss him after the, the the scuffle. And then he followed that up with one of the best dunks. One of the most surprising dunks in, in Tennessee history as he took a pick and roll and just absolutely piped on someone. I did not see that coming. And then he followed that up with a beautiful post seal and an easy layup. He, he had some screen assists for Zakai, clearing the rain, lane for free throws. And, yeah, I thought he really just kind of ended Kentucky's will. At that point, you knew the game was over. Whenever he punked them and then Tennessee gets a Dalton Connect dunk out of that, you knew, okay, Tennessee's going to win this game. I thought Toby was as good as anybody in terms of minutes production, and I thought that was maybe his best game as of all. It, yeah, I agree. It didn't start out great. I mean, he played 10 minutes. The first two minutes, he was in and out because, again, he got two fouls quick, which we've talked about. That's a that's a problem. But, man, those final eight minutes he played were so impactful. And that's what changes the complexion of that team, too, because I thought Jonas, Jonas you know, he had a double-double, and that's great. He had three blocks. That's okay. I still felt he was, again, looked a little passive on offense to me. And so if you can – at least have somebody who's going to come in and spell him. And, and I agree that Tobey's intensity just influenced the game. There is no question about it. It was, uh, again, like, like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, hitting on all cylinders. There, there's not much to look at here where you were like, we could have done that better. Um, of course, there's a couple plays here and there, but that was, that was a pretty complete performance. I thought – I thought if you go back to the first conference game against Ole Miss, that was a complete performance, just utter domination. And then Alabama, pretty complete performance. This one was the best of them all, I thought, so far. Talking about Awaka's minutes on the rewatch yesterday, something jumped out to me, and I, I was tracking it. And by my count, from the 14-minute mark, you know, kind of where he's getting those offensive rebounds and kind of setting the tone, all the way to the 8.30 mark. Tennessee scored on eight of their nine possessions. And that kind of put the game away. Eight of their nine possessions was just doing whatever they wanted, whether it be a layup line for Zakai, whether it be connect, getting the out-of-bounds dunks, Josiah hitting threes, eight of their nine possessions. Something else that jumped out was just Zakai doing what we talked about with paint touches. I thought he was very active with his dribble and keeping it alive around the rim and was kind of sucking the defense in whenever he would drive. Either he'd have a layup or he'd kind of circle around and boom, I'm going to find a shooter. And the shooters were making shots. Sam, how did you react to the 
the dust up between Awaka and Bradshaw. Oh, you I saw love the it. video, right? The guy definitely kissed him. Definitely right? kissed him. Definitely kissed him. The hell was that? <laughs> uh, I loved it, honestly. I, I think that's exactly. There were some guys, you know, in the post game press conferences that were kind of talking about that. That they've been challenging Tobey to kind of be that guy and be that enforcer and and kind of have that role whenever he gets out on the court. And I think that they've been looking for that. And you know, I think they finally got it. I saw one video where it's they're reviewing the play and they're all in the huddle and like Rick Barnes gives Tobey a high five after and like just saying like I like that you know like I got your back like you're playing hard for me I want that type of thing I think that was great yeah the bench you could clearly see the bench gassing up Tobey you saw Ganey being his personal hype man mm-hmm. on the court clapping and you know I thought Ganey had five points in the first half he had back-to-back buckets you're like okay they helped Tennessee get the lead back to double digits and then I thought he made some big plays in the second half just with hustle. I thought he had a huge offensive rebound on a huge. missed free throw. I thought he was just very active in his 19 minutes. You know, on Tuesday, I called it cardio. He was out there getting cardio. On on Saturday, his 19 minutes I thought were very impactful. I thought everybody's were. I thought this was one of the most well-coached games. I think you kind of look at the minutes distribution and, like, nobody played above 33 minutes. And to me, I thought it was a a really great sign that, on a night that maybe Dalton doesn't have his best stuff, like Rick Barnes was not scared to go away from Dalton at times. I think when they when they went in and subbed Cameron Carr in for those like two or three well, minutes, uh, I was like, "What are you doing?" Well, and then he comes in and makes some really big plays. Well, when you talked about that, you know Tennessee was you know Vescovy had a really bad turnover, but he stayed with it, got the loose ball back, and then passed. I was like, "Wait a second, is Cam Carr in the game?" And then yeah. he throws a beautiful alley oop, like one of the best passes you'll see any Tennessee player ever make to that, Josiah. That that to me, I, I was going to refer to that. I'm glad you guys brought it up. That was such an incredibly key play for the whole game mm-hmm. because at that point, Kentucky was making one of their runs. It was only a four point game, kind of a bad entry pass from Santee. Let's just call it what it was. There weren't many mistakes, but that was one of them. But then give Vescovy credit; he got in the mix, got the ball back, got it to Cameron Carr, and for a kid who has not been playing in that environment, that just, in any environment, that Bobby. just that just shows you what kind of game he's got to be able yeah. to make that pass. Because you talk about a if you're the visiting, I mean, if you're the the home crowd, you talk about a deflating play. I mean, to to have Josiah just throw it down to boot too. I mean, uh that was that was a key play, man. Yeah, I mean, you talk about playing in that environment. I mean, like he played one minute against Florida in a twenty point blowout. He played four minutes against Norfolk State in a thirty seven point blowout. Like he hadn't been playing at all. That's what I'm saying. Though. Yeah, that, that, the kids... oh, yeah, no, I'm just saying you said yeah. in that environment. It's, he hasn't been playing at all. He hasn't been playing in any yeah. environment. Like even in, in blowouts, boring blowouts, and uh, you know, at home, and to see him. He was not afraid of the moment. I'll give him that because that pass was beautiful. You know, if he had Joe Milton didn't throw it five, you know, rows into the crowd, you'd be like, that's understandable. He's juiced up. Yeah. Instead, he put it around the money. Josiah showing a lot of emotion, screaming on the alley oop was cool to see. But and then Cam Carr comes down and gets a big rebound. Mm-hmm. He was like, you know, trying to block shots around the rim. And then he shot a three <laughs> from the corner off the top of the backboard and just kind of laughs it off. And I was like, this guy's probably like, this is crazy. Just three minutes. I've, I felt the ball has fouled me like five different times in three minutes. Yeah, and I, I was wondering if, if Bar, as mad as Barnes is about bad shots, you know, I don't think he could have been mad about that one because Carr gave great energy while he was in there. That was a bad shot, though. Well, it was a good shot in the sense of like, hey, you're open. Yeah, don't hesitate, take it. It's a bad shot as you almost hit the damn top of the shot clock and. Yeah. 
you know, let out to a transition. I don't remember if Kentucky scored off of it or not, but I remember just watching whenever he hit the shot, and I was like, okay, time to get him out. <laughs> like, yeah. he, good little spurts, you know, dust him off, and he does look smooth out there, and I do hope that that's a a, a new wrinkle for Tennessee. Now, you might could say, hey, you know, he's he's beat out Dillion for those minutes, and maybe, maybe Freddie's not going to see those minutes anymore. But, like, hey, uh, this week, I believe it's Wednesday against LSU, I want to see some Cam Carr minutes. I agree. Let, let's see him out there. I want to see him see if he can crack the rotation. But, yeah, beautiful alley-oop. Maybe the actual, like, play of the game. If you could point to one play. Oh, that... I, it turned momentum, for yeah. sure. There's no question in my mind. Yeah, it, I, I, the, to me, the two biggest plays in the game were that and the one you mentioned earlier, Zakai's putback, because that was another one. Seven-point game, I think, and Kentucky's getting a little, you know, they're getting a little jacked. And, um, and Zakai, I mean, it was so great, this, like, so matter of fact how he put it back and just beat the shot clock and it was all happening um one in stripes wrote in john and this is another i think a really telling point he wrote more assists than shots taken when scoring 26 that's tough to beat that's what zakai did he shot 11 times but had 13 assists no he played a like trey young type of game or like a chris paul type of game maybe maybe chris paul is a better example because you had trail trail go there get out there and get up 17, 18 shots. That was a Chris Paul type of performance, is what that was. 26 and 13. That was point guard level for a guy that I've been pretty hard on, like, and, you know, said he needs to be better or, you know, called him a role player at best. He was a superstar on Saturday night. He was the best, most impactful player on the court. And it's a good observation 13 assists on 11 shots. It helps when you get to go to the free throw line uh, 10 times, but he knocked down seven of them and, you know, hit. Big shot after big shot. And I thought his threes kind of set the tone. He was three for three early yeah. from threes. I didn't want him taking them, honestly. It yeah. was when he'd set up, I'd be like, oh, no, man. And then they were just true. Like, they were – there was nothing – no doubt about them when they went down. It was great. You point to the 13 assists along those lines. Chris Paul-esque, only two turnovers Yeah, on those 13 assists. So, uh, pretty damn good when it comes to the assist-to-turnover ratio. The other thing, too, um, I thought about, and I, I talked about this on the Sunday show yesterday, is about managing expectations moving forward because we're quick to do this, you know, and, and we even had a caller come in because I made the comment that with Josiah, we have to be re- realistic. I mean, 26 points is not going to happen every night, but it goes back to what we talked about last week. If we could get 12 points, 13 points, five boards, four assists, that's a different kind of team if he's contributing that way. Um, again, we had a caller calling, I think it was Jeeker, who was saying, no, he's a five-star. It should be that way every game. It's like, that's not – It's just if it is, that'd be wonderful. I just – got to be realistic about that. Uh, take what we had last night. Is is Zakai going to get 26 every night? No. <laughs> yeah. But, it's, but these guys, if they can play at a level that's – close to that on a regular basis this team is entirely entirely different than what we saw Tuesday night I thought Josiah's biggest the biggest compliment I could give him or the thing that I liked the most was I just you saw aggression and and yeah. you know we talked about 106 minutes 11 shots his four games prior he shot the ball 18 times he was confident in his mid-range jumper and, like, I thought there were two pretty telling plays that neither one of them worked out. You know, he had a fast break on a steal. 
He went straight to the rim, reached Shepard, knocked the ball away from him out of bounds. Tennessee kept uh, possession. And then in the second half, to start the half, you know, and, and Kentucky's kind of keeping it close, Josiah had a one-on-three fast break. Not a three-on-one, a one-on-three fast break. But he didn't pull it out, and he attacked the rim and tried to go in and lay it up. Now, he missed it. He airballed kind of a finger roll, and it didn't work out for him. But he he was aggressive and was trying to attack the rim. And those are things that you've been begging for. Do I want him to score 26 points a game? Yeah, sure, obviously. Are those fair expectations? No, obviously. I'm not even going to adjust it too much, Bob, from what I said. I just want Vescovy and Josiah to score 16 points combined. Like, Mm -hmm. that's that's the number I want. Now, if Connect's going to kind of come back down to earth a little bit and isn't going to give you 25 a game, maybe you have to adjust that a bit. But, like, just, just give me 16 points between your two super senior guards. On Saturday, they scored 37. Obviously, Tennessee scored 100 points in one. You don't have to do that every game. If Josiah can score eight points and and do the rest of what he does, to me, that's just, you know, great enough. I won't call it perfect, but eight points, great defense, smart offense, being a coach on the court and, you know, kind of keeping everybody steady. That That is the Josiah Jordan-James that Tennessee needs. Anything else to me is house money. We'll open the phone lines up the back half of this hour if anybody wants to weigh in on the ass-beating that happened in Lexington. 865-546-8200. That's 865-546-8200 if you want to hop on with us and talk about the game. We'll continue the conversation after the break. It's the morning show here on Fan Run Radio. Jordan Moore writes in and points out a big Mayshack play I had in my notes as well on the rewatch. Mayshack, you know, he was maybe the one that actually kind of closed the door. It was a seven-point game with three minutes and 20 seconds left. Jonas misses around the rim. That's right. Mayshack comes in with a big offensive rebound and a putback. Mayshack only had four points, but they were impactful. The... You have a little hook in the lane, I think, to put it up 11. I believe he kind of hit that, a little aggressive little little hook shot. It's about, you know, eight feet away. And then, yeah, the the sky in offensive rebound put back, I thought was really good and, you know, made it a nine-point game. I thought everyone who played played well. You know, I don't remember anything from J.P. Estrella. I, I don't – good or bad. So, I, mean, I guess he gets lumped in saying he played well too. But I didn't see him do anything. But everybody else – the other eight guys I thought were pretty impactful. You touched on Ganey uh, in the last segment, and he did. He hit those two shots right up front. He shot eight times. That was a lot of shots. But, but, you that rebound he had, like you said, that was like a grown man rebound. I mean, that is as aggressive as I've ever seen him, actually, the way he, like, snagged the ball. And you, uh, I forget, one of his teammates, it might have been Josiah, went right to him when the ball was dead then and, like, came up to him kind of, you could tell, like, yeah, you know, that's what I'm talking about. You know, it was – they were all supporting each other. I love Zakai's reaction during the dust-up with uh, Waka and Bradshaw when Zakai loves to just stir it. You know what <laughs> I mean? He's walking around clapping right in front of all the Kentucky players. And, uh, man, it felt good. Felt good. I was a little worried at that moment. Like, okay, if, if Kentucky does have a run, here it comes. Like, because the crowd is going to get galvanized by a dust up, right? They're going to try to will their boys to victory. They're going to try to, like, will them to make some type of comeback. And then Dalton connect with a beautiful dunk 
just a play that Kentucky cannot guard. You know, they kept talking about how Georgia killed them with that and how Kentucky still hasn't figured out how to guard inbound plays. And Tennessee hit them twice, you know, in like a basically three or four possessions. Connect got two dunks on those inbound plays. And at that moment, you knew, okay, this team is actually just going to lie down. Kyle, I, I think it's Kyle Tucker, I believe is his name, who covers Kentucky for the athletic. Mm-hmm. He, he, he said after the game that fans, Kentucky fans, came to Rupp Arena on Saturday night wanting to see a championship contender and says, well, yeah, they saw one. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's just the other team. And in his write-up said that, you know, Kentucky's defense looked like five matadors trying to go up against seven bulls. And I thought back to that layup line Zakai had at times to get to the rim, and I just thought of Connect having a – Wide open lane to get a couple easy dunks out of inbound plays. In moments that Kentucky should have been playing their absolute hardest. When Tennessee was trying to punk their manhood. Instead of fighting back and showing their teeth, they were like a little dog that rolls over and gives you their belly. You know, it's funny too because I we talked about this last week. Um, we had some thoughts on it. I've heard it from friends of mine who are Kentucky fans up north. Um and it's questions about Calipari. I was looking at this in the first half, too, because I felt like, in some ways, he contributed <laughs> to Tennessee's success. And what I mean by that is Rob Dillingham comes in, gets 11 points in, like, felt like in a minute. I mean, he was he was on a heater for sure. And then they get to a dead ball, and he, he pulls Dillingham out. Dillingham doesn't have any foul issues or anything else, and – if I'm a Kentucky fan, it would be like, what are you doing? Why is that happening? And it's, it comes to that question that, that does – this is probably getting too deep, but I'm going to say it. You know that Cal's always about helping guys get to the league, bringing recruits in. Prom- is he promising minutes? Is there – you know, he's got so many players. He's – I don't know. I, that's, probably, that's probably overthinking it, but the point is – him pulling Dillingham out at that time, he did the same thing with Justin Edwards, I think, in the second half when Edwards got on a run, too. I just, if I were a Kentucky fan, that's kind of inexplicable to me, and it just aided a situation where they've already got liabilities on the defensive side. You've got some guys who are generating offense, and you're pulling them. Doesn't make sense to me, but it was good for Tennessee. Yeah, Calipari didn't seem to be pushing any of the right buttons. Dillingham, credit to him for, you know, keeping them in the game because, you know, at, at times it looks like only he and outside of a seven-point spurt that Justin Edwards had, Edwards scored, I believe, scored all seven of those kind of in a row there right. of his own, uh, you know, own personal 7-0 run for his team at least. I thought it was really just Dillingham against everybody else. There was no big ZD there to protect him. Reeves was about as impactful as Connect which on most nights you'd say it's a great thing. On Saturday night, it wasn't a great thing, especially whenever Connect wasn't that great for Tennessee on Saturday. Reeves needed to be special. He was not. The problem for Kentucky was Reeves did not have Josiah and Zakai and Vescovy and Awaka and Adu picking him up. He just had Dillingham make some shots. That was it. I don't know where this ranks in terms of Rick Barnes's best regular season wins at Tennessee, but I can't imagine there are too many that are better. 
what he's done against Kentucky is astounding. Not only does he have a winning record against Calipari in Kentucky, the stat that said he has 7-1 and one against Kentucky when they're in the top 10 is mind-blowing. Not when Tennessee is in the top 10. When Kentucky is in the top 10, 7-1. and one. That's an absurd stat. That doesn't even make sense. You know, a couple of those came with Kevin Punter as your best player. <laughs> he, he clipped Kentucky with Kevin Punter as his guy. Yeah, I, I saw that same stat. It's, it clearly has Cal's number. Um, that's only the – I saw two. That's only the second time that um, in the Cal era that Kentucky's lost back-to-back games um, at Rupp. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if that's excluding COVID or if the other year was in COVID, but, like, yeah. the full attendance, like, they don't really struggle at home, back-to-back games usually. And they gag that Florida game away, and everyone's like, okay, now they're going to come and they're going to lock in, and Tennessee's in trouble. They're going to get their best shot. Nope. Still didn't do anything. Still didn't play hard. Still still had no interest in playing defense. And the way that Cal handled that after the game and the way he handled the media, to me, is just – would be so frustrating. The excuses he was making and just saying, ah, you know, we still haven't had all of our scholarship players available at one time. And yeah, I understand they had their guard out and I understand that. Like I'd be making excuses too, if I was a Kentucky fan, but you don't want to hear from your head coach. It's one thing if the fans online want to be like, Hey, yeah, we'll get you in Knoxville. We'll be healthy, blah, blah, blah. And like, they're trying to talk trash and trying to cope. I don't want cope from my head coach. What I'd want if I'm Calipari or if I'm a fan of Kentucky, what I'd want from Calipari is for him to come out and say that was inexcusable, unacceptable, to say, like, yeah, we got to get better at defense. And until these guys decide they're going to take it personally and play defense as a team and take pride in it, then we're never going to get to where we want to get to. Like, that's what Rick Barnes would say. Imagine what Rick Barnes would say if a team came in and dropped 100 <laughs> points on his head. Like, he'd be throwing everybody under the bus. Calipari was like, give me time, give me time. This team is just young. You know, we, we got to figure it out. You got 10 games left in the season, you and know, like what, what, he, what time? And there's all, yeah, and there's also a pattern. He did it after the South Carolina game. He did it after the Tennessee game. He He's quick to say, well, they were hitting every shot. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, the, but that's your job. How do you get past that? Again, to your point, do you think Barnes would say that? No. He, well, it spilled over to the players. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure it was Dillingham. That it might have been a different player, but. One of them was like, has Zakai ever scored 26 points and had 13 assists? Like, wow, these players just come in here and go God mode. Like, has that guy ever had a game like that? And you're right. But at some point you have to look in the mirror and say, hey, if every person I meet is just a jerk and my my social interactions with them just go poorly and it's every single person I meet, maybe at some point you have to say, huh, maybe there's something I'm doing wrong. If every one of your relationships is failing for the same reasons, you have to stop and say, huh. Maybe I'm the problem. If every player you go up against has a career day, you might have to stop and say, we got to play better defense. Not just, wow, they're just really lucky. It's how about you try to do something to stop those players from going off. But instead, they had the same thing, the same mentality that Coach Calipari had, Bob, where they're like, yeah, you know, these guys just come in here and they have great performances. And the players just spilled over to them like, yeah, you know, just kind of unlucky, huh, when these guys make shots and – I didn't know Zakai could make wide open layups. I didn't know he had that in him. Yeah, 
I'm just looking at another co- a quote from him. I mean, teams are playing good against us. He's, it's kind of like, so what are you going to do? You know, it's like, God, I, if I again, if I'm a Kentucky fan, that would that would drive me nuts. Anybody who is a Rick a Rick Barnes basher, be thankful we don't ever hear any of that on a loss. That South Carolina loss, but he was like, yeah, we, you know, he. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. He was like, we sucked. You know, I mean, he there was there was no. You know that's a good team, but we we didn't play well, and we've got to get better. And you know I don't see any of that here. Well, just comparing the mentality, there was the quote after the game from Zakai, or you know I saw someone reported that Zakai was like, "We don't want to be one of those teams that pretends like things are good when they're not." And he was like, "Things were bad after the South Carolina game. We had to take it personally and get better." And like Zakai set the tone very early. Him and Josiah you know, hook up for the very first three-pointer of the game, and, like, you're kind of off and running since then. And both those guys, of course, combined for 52 points. And and they said, yeah, we suck to get South Carolina. We don't want to say, hey, it's just a game. Hey, we didn't make shots. It's like, hey, we have to lock back in. We have to take this personally. And then, of course, Tennessee came out and played maybe their best game, definitely offensively, in a long time. And compare that to the juxtaposition of what came out of that Kentucky locker room where they're just like, eh, you know, it happens. Everything's <laughs> fine. Give me time. And when John Calipari, you know, if it, if it was the mid 2010s and he had a, you know, four Final Fours in five years, you know, run, you would be saying, hey, give him the benefit of the doubt. But instead, it's a guy that lost to a 15 seed. It's a guy that missed the tournament a couple years ago. It's a guy that looks like he's on his last legs that hasn't been able to evolve, and he's still waiting for John Wall to come save him. He's still waiting on Carl Anthony Towns and Anthony Davis to come save him, and those guys aren't walking through those doors. Yeah. Just, again, reading some of the quotes. We still don't have DJ Wagner. We're young. We need to get healthy. It was... Yeah, I mean Wagner's solid, but like of he's course. he in his last game he had 35 minutes and scored eight points and had three assists against Arkansas. It's not like he's just going to come out there and be prime John Wall or Derrick Rose. What? Let me ask you this because I, as soon as I was about to, I was even going to jump on the text thread and say it, but then then of course the kid hit a couple shots towards the end. We've talked about Reed Shepard. Reed Shepard's obviously a really really good player. I felt he looked in a lot of moments in that game a little overmatched, like physically and everything else. Did you guys sense any of that? Yeah, and you kind of got a, a, a tip off to that against Florida because I thought you know he was kind of responsible for the one guy going off and hitting seven threes. I thought he lost a lot of uh, his assignments there and kind of got lost on defense. There was a highlight clip or low light clip of of people kind of pointing out how bad of defense he played. So I think mm-hmm. he might have been dealing with a little bit of lack of confidence there. And yeah. and Tennessee was kind of picking on him defensively. I, I saw one highlight where it was Reed Shepard went like under a screen that I think Ganey hit a three on. Yeah. And it was Wagner on the bench just like putting his hands up. Yeah. Like, what are you doing? Do not go <laughs> under the screen. Yeah. The guy had seven threes and he was like, yeah, we're going to leave this guy open. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Credit to Josiah Jordan-James. He played awesome. He had a quote after the game. The start of SEC play it was kind of tough for me, but for me, the biggest thing is just winning. If I'm scoring the ball, if I'm not scoring the ball, the only thing I care about is winning. So I blame those two losses on myself, just my poor performance, but my teammates and my coaches have had my back the whole way. You had you know, him kind of take the blame for the two SEC losses, and you saw him respond and kind of put – 
the team on his back. I mean, he only had, what, nine points? Did he have nine points in the first half or 11 points in the first half? Was it 15 or 17 second-half points? Either way, you know, he was making big shot after big shot every time Tennessee needed something. And for the people that say that's what you're supposed to do as a fifth-year senior, yeah, it is, and he did it. And you got to give him credit. Whenever you crush him and you're so hard on him, you better come and you better praise him. He better be Josiah the Messiah for you today because he saved Tennessee countless times in that game. And if you're so hard on him, and of course the Tennessee basketball Twitter account, whoever runs it, you know, I think the high haters post they had with Josiah smiling, I think that was, you know, obviously acknowledgement of the the noise that's been around him a lot this year. But that's why he's important to be part of that team, too, like what you just said, that he talked about, hey, the, you know, two losses are on me. That's that's a leader, you know, and that, that, again, we talked about this weeks ago about was it better to have him come back than keeping Ledlam? And, well, after Saturday night, I'd say there's no question it is, but we talked about that intangible. It's, you know, it's not just the performance on the court. It's what how he carries himself, how he leads that team. Um it's just part of the fabric of that team. I believe him when he says, my stats are secondary in my mind to me as long as we're winning. And that's the kind of player you want. I, I, I'm, I'm very happy for him to have a game like that. I just hope there's more of them. It's the same quote that Vescovy had at practice where he said, hey, I don't care about my stats. I just want to win. Right. Those are your two fifth-year guys both saying the same thing. I was happy to see both of them end their career at Rupp Arena, their, their last chance at Rupp Arena, playing well and, and getting a big win. The end of hour one is brought to you by White Claw Hard Seltzer. Pick up some of their White Claw Premium Vodka. It was nice to see J.B. Smoove back last night on Curb Your Enthusiasm. You hear him on the White Claw Premium Vodka commercials. Please drink responsibly, and when you do drink, have your White Claw Hard Seltzer and support the people who support us responsibly, of course, unless you're celebrating 103 points on Kentucky's head. Hour one in the books. We'll kick off hour two of some things you might have missed over the weekend. It's the morning show here on Fan Run Radio. All right, let's hit the phone lines. Let's grab Ryan Shumpert's. RockyTopInsider.com. Ryan, as always, thanks for joining us. Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me on. Happy Monday. It feels good to get to break down Tennessee dominating Kentucky on this Monday. What was your biggest takeaway from the game? I think it's probably just the way guys other than Dalton Connect stepped up. I mean, if you would have told me Tennessee won this game by scoring 103 points and Dalton Connect scored 16 points, I'm not sure I would have believed you. Uh, I picked Kentucky to win kind of for that very same reason. You know, Kentucky struggled to guard, but Tennessee's guys besides Dalton have been so inconsistent at hitting shots, especially on the road, that I just wasn't sure Tennessee was going to be able to fully capitalize on it and win. But that's exactly what happened. And obviously, really career games for both Kai Ziegler, uh, who really just one bad game against South Carolina, but was, was definitely starting to cool down after a hot start to SEC play. And then obviously I think everybody has to be really happy for uh, Josiah Jordan-James, who goes over uh, how many points he scored in the first seven SEC games and uh, his career high at Kentucky. Morning, Ryan. Uh, you talk about Zakai and um, 
read your your piece on uh, RockyTopInsider.com, it sure did sync up his performance with what you wrote about the fact that uh, Coach Barnes and he had a bit of a heart-to-heart after the South Carolina game. Um, Want to expand on that a little bit because he looked like a different guy out there Saturday night. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, what Rick Barnes and Zakai talked about a little bit too is that Rick really came to him and said, you know, I need you to be tougher on these guys. And I think what Rick was kind of getting at is Tennessee's got a lot of players that are encouraging other dudes. And, you know, that's a form of leadership for sure. He said, but I need more guys that will hold other people accountable. And the clip that I immediately thought of, and maybe this will be too niche, is, and it's kind of the reverse of it, is Troy Aikman. I think when, uh, Barry Switzer was the coach. He's just yelling at the the quarterback's coach on the sideline about how nobody will hold the players accountable but him. And that's kind of how it felt, Rick, Rick Barnes talking about it. He said, I can't be the only guy here that's the bad guy. Someone needs to step up uh, and get on these guys. And Josiah Jordan James talked about how Zakai was having some choice words for guys that practice uh, when they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. And certainly uh, he did that and then you know returned it tenfold with how he played. And uh, to have on top of 26 points on an incredibly efficient shooting performance, to have 13 assists and just two turnovers, to have three steals and do it all against probably the guy and Reed Shepard that he's competing with to be the best point guard in the SEC was was really, really impressive. Uh, about as good as a point guard performance as I could remember watching at a game I was at. Yeah, I called it Chris Paul-esque. Like he, looked yeah. like, he looked like prime Chris Paul the way he controlled the game and the assist numbers and points and turnovers. That was about as good of a Chris Paul impression as you could do in college. Chris Paul, six foot, always a little undersized in the NBA, kind of like Zakai in college as well. Ryan, you covered the team closely. You're at practice. What went through your mind when you saw Cameron Carr come up with a loose ball and throw a perfect alley-oop? Well, it was interesting. Rick, you know, my coworker at RTI, was actually on top of it where Justin Ganey went up uh, to Rick Barnes and said something to him, and then Barnes kind of nodded and he went and got Cam Carr, and I was like, oh, man. This is uh, this is an interesting move in this moment. I mean, of all the freshmen, he's probably played the least uh, of any of the four, at least in SEC play. And now, I mean, from our angle, you saw it. Josiah immediately, once Cam Carr came up with that ball, pointed up and wanted the lob. And for him to deliver it right on the money, I thought was impressive. For him to have the kind of the calm and, and collectedness in, in that moment was impressive. And obviously, the three pointer he took from the corner <laughs> didn't go quite as well uh, a minute or two later, but. Still, you saw that you know from Carr, he's not a guy that is ever going to get in there and play 10 minutes in an SEC game, let alone one that big. But for him to, to come up and, and play pretty well in a couple minutes in the first half, I thought was a good sign. And, you know, Tennessee likes that freshman class a lot. And they're not having to ask a ton for them, but uh, just an, another example of one of those guys being able to step up and uh, give Tennessee some, some pretty solid minutes in the first half of a big game. Watching on TV, the team looked pretty fired up and motivated with the scrum or after the scrum of Tobey Awaka. And basically, as he was taking on the entire Kentucky team, what did it look like from inside the arena? Uh, just that. I, the thing, I think I tweeted it out, but I don't think I've ever seen a Tennessee player walk to the sideline or walk back to the bench and get more high fives than Tobey Awaka did. <laughs> it felt like every player, every coach, Rick Barnes, I mean, it was a. Uh, very, very excited from everybody on Tennessee's side that they saw that that side of Awaka, and he had that intensity, and he he went right at Kentucky. And and Josiah even talked about it after the game, and we've heard a couple different guys say it. 
you know, obviously probably 95% of the games Tennessee plays this year, they, they do not miss Euros Plossus. <laughs> They're much better off without him. But that kind of goon, kind of enforcer uh, that Euros was, Tennessee, I think, has missed in a couple of games. And they want to have a big guy like that who kind of sets the tone. And Josiah said it, you know, Walk is the perfect guy for that, especially if he's already going to be fouling at the rate that he's been fouling at in SEC play. You might as well have him be that enforcer and that physical guy. And for him to, to do that exactly, uh, I think it really sparked a fire under the rest of the Tennessee team and certainly himself. I mean, you talk about it. Tennessee didn't respond with some massive run, but after that stretch, Walker grabs a couple more rebounds, I think three rebounds in the next three minutes and has two baskets, including a dunk on a pick and roll where – yeah, I was not expecting to see a walk and well, dunk that. I mean, he, that, he's not a guy that shows that explosiveness a ton. That's where I got to push back a little bit on the Uros thing because if he if he was still there gooning it up, who only knows what would have happened? He would definitely not have jammed on anybody. He would have uh, maybe missed a couple rebounds and missed a couple of bunnies. Yeah, I was gonna. Well, s- oh, go ahead, Ryan. You're good. <laughs> no, uh, that's probably a good point, but uh, just from yeah, that's where a walk can be a better version uh, right. of what Uros gave. Uh, Tennessee in that way and, and kind of being that physical guy and that enforcer. But uh, you're right. I don't think Euros was going to show a ton of athleticism getting off into rebounds, and he certainly wasn't going to dunk like that on a pick and roll. Yeah, that's right. What I was going to say, Ryan, was that um, I, I've, I view Tobe as a more refined version of what we used to get from Euros in that we saw that Saturday night, and we, we talked about this earlier in the show, a couple of plays. There was one where Zakai kind of brought the ball down the middle Tobey was in there and literally just cleared out the lane for him. It looked like Takai was just doing a layup drill, basically, in the in the middle of Rupp Arena. And um, there's there's something with T- Tobey's game. We talked, you and I talked about this on the show last week when we were saying that I think to you were saying that he may be the the one that's in the biggest funk. And this was before the South Carolina game. And we were worried about his minutes. And he 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 only had ten minutes on Saturday night, but take the first couple of minutes out when he got those two quick fouls, as he tends to do. The remaining minutes he played, he had such an influence on the game, and it's kind of exactly what we were talking about last week, that when he can contribute that way, just like what we saw with Josiah and Santi and even Zakai, that's a totally different kind of team we saw Saturday night. It 100% is, and obviously – Jones A. Dew's probably taking the biggest leap of anyone on this Tennessee team, but you know Tennessee's still looking for more consistency out of the rest of their big men, whether that's a Walker or J.P. Estrella. And it was kind of a hilarious 10 minutes for Walker because he picks up two quick fouls in the first half. Obviously, he gets a dead ball foul uh, with the scrum, and then he picks up his fourth foul, just one of those maddening Walker fouls on a rebound that he wasn't going to get. But certainly... The minutes that he gave him uh, was absolutely huge, and his offensive rebounding, I mean, that was, I think, kind of an underrated story in the game for Tennessee. Tennessee misses 38 shots. They get 18 offensive rebounds. Uh, the final stats don't really indicate that they dominated the glass because Kentucky got an, a, a number of offensive rebounds, too. Uh, but it felt like any time Kentucky was trying to make a run and string some stops together, Tennessee was able to get get some offensive boards and some second-chance points, which, you know, I guess after – Kentucky got it to one, I guess, the first possession, or I guess maybe the first minute of the second half, and it never got lower than seven after that. Do you attribute that to Tennessee's offense clicking on all cylinders, or how much do you give Kentucky's defense just being completely lifeless? Yeah, I mean, it's got to be a combination of both. And 
I don't know, maybe this is me being too negative from the Tennessee side. I almost go more to Kentucky's defense being lifeless. I mean, just I've been joking about it for a couple weeks now when John Calipari keeps talking about, you know, guys don't have off-shooting nights against us. And it's like, well, you don't play any defense. And watching that game, man, all those Tennessee threes were pretty much uncontested. And Bob mentioned it there with Tobey having a couple seals on layups for the guy Ziegler going in. Jemai Meshack had one, too. I mean, Jemai Meshack's 6'4 down there, and he's sealing off Kentucky big men's to get his guards wide open layups. And just the number of straight line drive layups that the Kai Ziegler had in this game and the number of wide open threes that Tennessee took. And granted, I mean, I said it there at the lead, I wasn't sure Tennessee was going to be able to hit uh, all these uncontested threes. So, you know, it speaks to the fact that they still did it. But, man, Kentucky's pretty lapless uh, or pretty hapless on defense. And you got to be able to take advantage of it. But it, it, to me, it felt, when you're talking about scoring 103 points, it felt like that was just as much. Uh, Kentucky's issues as much as it was Tennessee just playing well on that end. Yeah, watching Kentucky and their players and Coach Cal talk about players having the game of their life against them, I just can't help but think of Tim Robbins in the the hot dog suit, the meme from I Think You Should Leave, where he's like, we're all trying to find the guy who did this. (laughs) It's like, yeah, yeah, Kentucky, the players have the game of their life against you because you don't play any defense. You somehow gave up 79 points to South Carolina. Georgia scored 96 against you. Florida yeah, dropped I mean, 94. Like, I mean, everyone's scoring against them. It feels like half the teams in the SEC have scored 90 on them. And, no, it's funny you bring up the the meme that we're all looking for the guy who did this because Grant Ramey, I think, tweeted it out after the game with Cal's face on that, talking about him in the post game, talking about we just got all these young guys and we're, we're learning and, and, you know, you're trying to get better. What's it? Well, you recruit a whole new roster every year, Cal. Why is it so shocking that you're still trying to learn these things in February? Oh, apologies to Grant. I wasn't trying to steal his joke. I'm sorry, Grant, if you're listening. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I thought about, you know, there he, we, we talked about this a little bit earlier. You know, Cal, he, there was a pattern. He, he said this after South Carolina, said it after the Tennessee game. You know, they hit shots. We're missing players. DJ Wagner's out. I mean, DJ Wagner, I, I honestly believe – Obviously, they're a better team if he's on the court, but I'm not sure they win that game even if D.J. Wagner's in there. Oh, definitely not. And, I mean, a lot of the minutes that got filled was Rob Dillingham playing exactly. where Wagner was out. And if Rob Dillingham doesn't have one of the most efficient 35-point performances I've seen in college basketball, then Tennessee probably wins that game by 25 points. I mean, he was really the only thing that kept Kentucky within striking distance in that game was his ability to hit some, some really tough jump shots. It seemed like desperation coming from the stands, from the fans. Like they, It was like a overmatched team trying to will their team to just try hard. Like The way they cheered all game, even down double figures. What was the vibe like during TV timeouts? What was the vibe like after the game as they started kind of filing out of the stadium or arena? Well, you're right. And, you know, Tennessee gets up by 10 in the first two, two three minutes of the game, and it is exactly what it felt like. Then trying to wheel Kentucky back in, and it was really for the first, I don't know, 35 minutes of the game. It was a great atmosphere of them just trying to do that, and it felt like there were so many former Kentucky uh, NBA players that were at the game, and so many uh, Tim Couch, a number of Kentucky football players, and that's what it was during timeouts was showing all those guys. But uh, a lot of nervous energy, and you know, I'll say the last. As you all noticed, the last two and a half minutes of that game felt like it took forever because Kentucky just kept on fouling for so long. And it felt like a fall Saturday inner squad scrimmage before a big football game. I mean, the place was just half empty. And I'll give credit to Rob Lewis. Volquist was sitting beside me and he said, Shump, 
take a picture of this. You're not going to see this much with a minute left and this place being completely empty. And it just had a, a very, very strange vibe. Uh, I think Matt Jones, uh, KSR, said someone that he knew that was at the game said it was one of the angriest crowds he'd ever seen as they were leaving. Um, obviously a bad two weeks for Kentucky. And you know, two weeks before that Georgia game, it felt like everybody was crowning them as a Final Four favorite. Mm-hmm. And things uh-huh. were really, uh-huh. my really two, falling apart. My two apart people here, Ryan, yeah. they were doing the same thing. Your, your, your boy Bob was in love with Big Zidi. Said the Kentucky scary. My producer Sam said, and you know, Reeves was just as good as Connect, and he's scared of Kentucky. And now look at him. Two weeks later, now, now look, you got Coach Cal dodging the the post game radio show and all those things. Well, I might be a little guilty too of hyping Kentucky up, well, but I mean, it's, it's quite the fall from grace. And, and yeah, for see? I mean, I guess the the second thing I would add on the Calipari stuff you mentioned him in the post-game radio show is that in games at Kentucky, and really this is how it works most places, but the away coach always speaks first at the podium. Well, Cal Perry jumped Barnes and came in and talked uh, to the media first and kind of skipped the order. So clearly, I don't know, flustered is the right word, uh, but he was a little bit out of sorts, and he was, he was trying to get out of Rupp Arena as fast as anybody after the game. Maybe you don't know, but the thing I saw online is that he had a sick dog he had to get home to. Was that just a joke, or was there anything to that? <laughs> I saw that tweet, too. I, I assumed that it was a joke, okay. but I don't know. Maybe he did have a sick, sick dog he had to get back to. Ryan Shumpert, RockyTopInsider.com. I'm going to put you on the spot on the way out. The next six games before Tennessee gets to kind of that, that last four-game stretch. LSU, at A&M, at Arkansas, home for Vandy, at Missouri, home for A&M. Tennessee's record is what in those six games? Oh, man, I'll go 5-1. and one. I think the goal has to be, and maybe even the expectation has to be 6-0 and oh, uh, when you're talking about trying to make up for the South Carolina loss and winning the SEC. But that's kind of been the story of Tennessee the last two years in SEC play is just losing a couple too many games against teams that maybe aren't just horrific losses, teams that are you know fringe tournament teams, especially on the road. And uh, when you talk about that A&M game and how bad Tennessee's been at Arkansas, I don't know. Maybe I'm giving Tennessee too little credit because a lot of those games probably look a lot easier than they did when SEC play started. But I'll say five and one. Ryan Schumpert, RockyTopInsider.com. Appreciate your time as always. We'll talk to you next Monday. Yeah, sounds great. Appreciate you guys having me on. Thanks, Ryan. Sam, send us to break. It's the morning show on Fan Run Radio. A brand. Kicking off hour number three inside of the White Claw Hard Seltzer Studios. Anything college football related? I know Tennessee. Was there anything noteworthy, Bob, in the NCAA response to Tennessee and Tennessee's attorney general? Because i got to be honest, I'm, I'm kind of over that story now. Yeah, I, I think it's it might be a little bit of hurry up and wait. I mean, they're they're... I think it's uh, something's happening on the 13th, but the NCAA did respond with a 25-page document. And, I mean, the biggest highlight was saying there's no reason to upend this process, invite chaos on a moment's notice, and transform college sports into an environment where players and schools matched up based primarily on the dollars that can change hands. That's kind of the way it's been. Yeah, it's the way it, it is the way it's been. Again, yeah. it comes back to what we were talking about last week, that – Great, NCAA, if you want to have that position on it, do it when at the outset, when this whole thing began, not a couple of years later. And so, um, yeah, and then, you know, the the 
<laughs> the Tennessee Attorney General is definitely, you know, continues to double down too. I mean, he's he's basically saying um, he's got a little heat check going on every time he speaks. Everyone's like, "Yeah, hell yeah!" So he just keeps on and on. Yeah, garnering support. He wrote, the NCAA apparently knows the meaning of Tennessee law better than Tennessee's attorney general. This argument is both wrong and irrelevant. Because Plain- the NCAA came out and said that Tennessee was not acting even under their own state's guidelines, right, and, and following state law when it came to NIL. Yeah. Correct? That was the accusation the NCAA threw out. So as the attorney general said, uh, no, incorrect. Yeah. yeah, and here's another one. It's not the plaintiff's fault that the NCAA has decided to regulate NIL and recruitment through a Byzantine set of overlapping rules of guidance. I mean, he's throwing down for sure. And, and yeah, so now we just wait and see. I think, I think some of the fervor has passed. Uh, there's been a lot of um, shout-outs on social media to – the fan base that started in on this, hey, let's tailgate at the courthouse, yeah. and let's, you know, it's like, please don't do that. <laughs> that, that was the official moment, Bob, that I quit paying attention to the story. Yeah. It's like, okay, us talking about it has worked some of these people up into a, a frenzy, and they're going to go do something stupid. Like Everyone's like, the last thing judges want are fans <laughs> and people hijacking the the process. Like That's the worst thing you could do. Exactly. I, I, I think that hopefully that's all passed. Uh, we just need to let the... Uh, uh, the professionals handle it from here and not uh, try to help in any way, shape, or form. Uh, so, yeah, I agree with you. I think now it's a little bit of hurry up and wait. We'll, we'll, we'll just see what happens, and we'll be able to report back as uh, more facts come available. But I was sent a, a tweet from some schmohawk that was saying that I would be there tailgating. I'm sure John Reed will be there. <laughs> I took that as a shot at me, Bob. Well, that I would be there. I would not. I would not go to something like that. I have not. You haven't brought a megaphone in yet, so it was a one-time thing. A bullhorn. It was a one-time thing, and it was necessary. <laughs> it was necessary, and when we did it, we didn't know what was going to happen. It wasn't like we were trying to just, uh, you know, go and get attention. But yeah, some schmucks said, "I'll be at. The, I will not be at the courthouse. I, I won't. I won't." But yes, like you said, hurry up and wait. That's kind of where. We are at now in the process. I'm over the process. I think Tennessee has nothing to worry about, and we uh, shall just wait. Agreed. ESPN got to talking college football playoffs. That was in the news this weekend because the Big Ten and SEC was kind of like, yeah, you know, we're not ready to commit to that whole 12-team playoff yet. We're not ready to do that. We're not ready to, to necessarily say we're going to stick around with that forever because unless the – the NCAA does it right, we might just take our – the implication, I guess, was that we might just take our ball and do our own thing. We got the best teams in the country. We don't need to make sure we play anybody from the Big 12. Clemson and Florida State, ah, we're good without them. And you're kind of like, yeah, you know what? It's true. They don't necessarily need those teams. But ESPN was trying to talk about the current – set up for the 12-team playoff, and you said they, they mentioned all of the possible teams that can make the playoff and made their predictions. Is that correct? Yes. And, of course, I'm searching for it now and can't seem to find it. But the headline was, um, and it was, you know, Heather Denich, Chris Lowe, Harry Lyles. I mean, it was, it was names that we're familiar with. And they did not have – none of them had Tennessee making the field of 12. None of them had Tennessee making the final 12. Sam, your thoughts? Uh, I'm not a huge fan of that. I think this Tennessee <laughs> team is clearly a top 12 team next year, honestly, with, with what you've got coming back. 
you know, I think on the offensive side of the ball and your offensive line and one of the best quarterbacks, young quarterbacks in the country. Yeah, it's kind of crazy because a lot of the projections I've seen are people that think Tennessee is going to be the same team as they were last year. And, like, I could not disagree more in terms of thinking the team is going to look the same as it did last year. I, I am holding on to hope that we are going to look more like the 2022 team, which, by the way, loser of the weekend. Man, uh, I didn't pile on online, and some Tennessee fans didn't pile on online, but I saw a lot of college football fans and NFL fans piling on. Not a great senior bowl for Joe Milton. A lot of the things you saw from him that drove you crazy at Tennessee were on full display in the Senior Bowl. Maybe even more. Yeah. Maybe even more. Yeah. All right, you want to hear some of these? Before we get to those, we're just we're talking about like how the projections are for Tennessee. Yes. I'm looking at you know returning production. Tennessee doesn't have a lot of returning production. Bill Connolly just put out his his rankings of returning production in college football. And, you know, sometimes that's a recipe for success. If you have a good team that's bringing back a lot of talent, chances are they'll be good again. Tennessee ranks 94th in returning production this year. He has Tennessee listed as one of his most likely teams to regress. Most likely to regress in 2024. Of course, he's got Michigan, who is, you know, losing a lot of people. They are 115th in production. They are, you know, bringing back a... Uh, you know, losing a coach. Well, actually, they're 128th in uh, returning production. Alabama is set to regress. They are bringing 100, the 115th most production back. Washington, the same way. Those three teams are all mentioned playoff teams. Florida State and Tennessee, those are the teams he mentions as regressing. What were we at? 90? 94th. In That's terms surprising of, to me. I mean, you lose your starting quarterback – you lose your running back and Jalen Wright. That's okay. Jabari Smalls. You lose both of those guys. But, like, outside of that, you're not losing a big-time receiver. You're losing your tight ends. So, like, both of them, like, if you're looking at production, like, I will say, like, your tight end's going to be unproven. Your sure. quarterback only has one game, and they might not even count that in the ranking since it was a bowl game. I'm not sure. But, like. I think you got better at tight end, honestly, maybe. But maybe that's, you know, I mean, that's obviously you haven't seen something so far yet in, on the field. Yeah, I don't think you got worse in tight end. I don't think at all. I think Davis is a guy that's a huge athlete, and I think Stays was the number one tight end in the portal. Yeah. I mean, and you got a blocking tight end from Alabama who's going to be at least a, a factor in the run game that, like, should be able to do what Jacob Warren did. Like, obviously, no disrespect to Jacob, local kid, you know, great career. Maxed to me, out. To me, the only production that you're losing on this team is just obviously replacing the entire secondary, but that's your worst unit. Well, I think Jalen Wright's a big loss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I guess I'm I, more thinking I think thinking Tennessee's of, run game is going to be fine. True. That's what I'm saying is I think maybe that, like, I don't think it's a step down necessarily from Jalen Wright when you have Samson and, and Cam Selden. Correct. It's not, but if you're just looking at it from a returning production Absolutely. standpoint, you're Absolutely. losing probably, what, 90% of your rushing yards sure. between those two guys? Sure. I'm just thinking that they can come in and be seamlessly transitioning. To right, that. and that's why these numbers don't always work because sometimes you are processing guys out of the secondary and you're looking at, oh, look at the, you know 85% of the starts here. They're gone now, but you're like, yeah, but chances are the people that are coming in next are going to be just as good, if not better. Now, Jalen Wright, I think, was really, really good. And you might not get the same type of production from one running back as you got from him. 
But I would be surprised if Tennessee didn't get the same amount of running production, rushing production, just in general from from Selden and Sampson. Yardage-wise, that that small and right did. Now, is one guy going to be as good as Jalen Wright? I don't know. We'll see. I think Sampson can be. But I think that both of those are just as good, if not better, than small and right together. Because I think of the four guys we're talking about, is it unfair to say that that small has the lowest ceiling and the lowest floor of guys getting that many carries? Tennessee was all over the place in 2023, losing to three top 10 teams by an average score of 36 to 12, but otherwise going nine and one with mostly comfortable wins. It was a bit of a reloading year after the 2022-11 win breakthrough, but it appears 2024 might require further reloading. Everyone is excited about the possibilities of blue-chip quarterback Nico Iamaliava, but that will still produce a drop in experience levels. And despite the addition of explosive two-lane receiver Chris Brazel II, the skill core, defensive line, and secondary will all start the 2024 season relatively unproven thanks defensive to both line? NFL departures and transfers. I really like respect Bill Connolly. I do think he is really good at what he does. The numbers, I think, are really good. His rankings are usually pretty lockstep on who the actual top teams are. But this analysis here, I think, is pretty poor. I agree. The defensive line is losing a bunch of people. That's your strongest unit, in my opinion, on this football team. Like you're saying, it's relatively unproven. Like You might have the best defensive player in the country, not named Caleb Downs. Like, I mean, when you're looking at the NFL draft, like, he's been said to be the number one guy going on defense. Of course, Downs is just a sophomore. But, like, James Pierce is just as good, if not better, than everybody in the country. You've got Big O coming back on that line. Like, Bryson Eason was kept, a contributor. You kept Lott. No more, yeah, Norman Lott. You kept Lott, everybody. Joshua Joseph. So, you're going to, like, you're going to have your young four- and five-star prospects that have kind of been sitting on the bench this year as guys that can come in and be producers next year as well. I think that D-line is, like, clearly your best unit. And also, like, I mean, the skill core, sure, if you're going to tell me that Jabari, Small, and, and Jalen Wright, but, like, are we, are we losing any wide receivers that I'm missing? I mean, Brew's coming back. Got Brew back, yeah. They talked about Thornton maybe hitting the portal. But, like, I mean, that's not even a big loss. I mean, you upgraded with Brazil. Brazil, yeah. Keep Squirrel. You keep Squirrel. At a five-star freshman. I mean... Bob, if we're regressing in 2024, things have gone pretty poorly. Yeah, I I would agree. And I'm just, again, as I'm reviewing all these picks, it's it's very um it's it's very disappointing to see. Again, the we talked about and you mentioned Bill Connolly, uh Chris Lowe, David Hale, uh Harry Lyles. Do not know who Andrea Adelson is, but she's in here, and then Heather Dinich. And the ones I'm going to focus on mostly are the first-round buys because you don't want to go through all of these for 12 teams. But the one that's most disappointing is Alabama is picked by five of six of these, not to be in a first-round buy, but to be in the field of 12. Okay. So Alabama's gotten picked by five of six. Five of six. The only one who didn't pick them was this uh, Adrian Adelson. Do we look at Do we look at that as like – are we being homers for thinking that Alabama is going to take a step back and like that that spots up for grab? Like, are we being homers by saying that? I understand 
Kalen DeBoer, you know, is is thought of as an elite coach. I understand that he just made the playoff of Washington, but like I just told you, Alabama was what 128th or 115th in returning production. Exactly. Does that mean that there aren't five, four and five stars there? Sure, but there aren't as many as there used to be because a lot of them transferred out. By the way, did you see the graphic, the reports that came from uh, some Twitter account that listened to an interview with the guy's dad but said that Alabama tampered, in all caps, tampering with the Arizona quarterback. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's his name? Noah Fafita. Fafita, yeah. Mm-hmm. Said that DeBoer tried to call him and recruit him to come to Alabama. Did not see According that. to Fajita's dad. Yeah, I saw that. According to Fajita's dad in an interview, said that three schools reached out to him trying to get him to come and that he had never entered the transfer portal and that was illegal. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, that, to me, maybe get the NCAA on that after they get done with Tennessee and Nico. Maybe send them to Alabama. Yeah, I was surprised to see five out of six. I guess, uh, yeah, maybe we maybe we do overstate the fact that with Saban leaving that it's going to be that bad at Alabama. I still believe it will be that they're not a playoff qualifier, but I could be wrong. Ole Miss is a clean sweep. To make the playoffs, not a buy. That seems ridiculous, too. Six out of six picked Ole Miss. And then uh, focusing on SEC, Missouri was uh, three out of six in terms of picks to make the the playoff field. And that, again, feels like – again, that was a good team this year. Uh, Drinkwitz is kind of a goober, but he's a good coach. Um, I still think there's some recency bias there. they got to show me again next season. Ironic. What? So they got to show you. Oh, show me state, yeah, Missouri, yeah, yeah. I wasn't even playing uh, that game. I thought it was pun intended. I wish. I thought um, it was pun intended. I mean, like when you look at both of their schedules, okay, like yeah, Missouri and Ole Miss are both set up with their schedule. That's fine, but like Tennessee schedule is not some murderer's row. Tennessee's schedule has the perfect balance in ter- of what, you know, maybe I'm being a little bit biased by calling it the perfect balance, but like you've got four shots. At wins that people will look at and say, okay, that was a good win. Or really only three. Maybe three. You got to go one and two in your three games. Was Oklahoma their fourth one, maybe? Well, Florida was my fourth one. Florida was your fourth one? Because Florida's not going to be like a okay. – Florida's more important to the fan base than it is nationally True. perception-wise. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because yeah. at the end of the day, that Florida team might win four games, five games. It matters a lot to the fan base. But, like, you got three opportunities to get a marquee win. And I think to make the 12-team playoff, you really only got to win one of them. If you beat Alabama, if you beat Oklahoma, or you beat Georgia, that one win is going to carry a lot of weight because Oklahoma and Georgia are on the road and Alabama apparently still a playoff team. Now that's without you know falling apart otherwise, but like the schedule sets up to not fall apart anywhere else. So like you just got to win one of those three games. If you go 0-3, you're going to be fighting uphill, but you would still probably have like a 20% chance of being a playoff team if you go 0-3 if you go 0 and 3 in those games, as long as you're looking good the rest of the way. Bob, agree or disagree with that? I agree with that. If you go 9-3 and and those losses are close, now if you get blown out in all three of them, that's going to change the perception. But like, you could maybe be the 11th or 12th ranked team if that's the case. Based on some of these teams I'm seeing, I would say yes. Now, some of them would be automatic qualifiers, sure. I guess, but I, I, I would agree with that. Yeah, you need to be ranked 11th to, to avoid the automatic qualifier of the Group 5 kind of swooping in on you. Although, maybe that's what the SEC and, and Big Ten are threatening. Like, hey, moving forward, no more auto, automatic qualifiers for the Group 5. <laughs> if so, we're going to go do our own national championship. Yeah. 
So the first round buys, again, I'm not going to go through all of these. You can go to ESPN.com and see them. But I'm curious for like the, the consensus of the first correct. four buys. Well, like, yeah. And so obviously, top of the list, six for six out of the six people that picked them, Georgia's. Is a the first round buy? Yeah, absolutely. Every single one of them picked them. Second was Ohio State. Four of the six picked Ohio State. To me, Ohio State seems more like a lock than, than I would agree. I agree with that. Than George, although I will say, I guess with Oregon coming into that conference, maybe Oregon wins the conference. Because like the the way too early top twenty fives all have like Oregon kind of as that top team. I forget about Oregon going. Yeah, to it's, it's dumb, but they are there. <laughs> yeah, but since then Ohio State loaded up and you know had a really good season in the transfer portal. So like. Maybe not calling them a lock to make the top four, but I would say Ohio State's a lock to make the playoff. I would agree. The next two that have the most votes, they each have uh, three of the six pundits placing them in the first round buys. Want to guess who they are? It's not Ole Miss, or is it? Are no. they up? Okay. No, Ole Miss is not in the buy. Texas. Bracket. Texas, yeah. No, because no, I guess te- I guess uh, to be top four, you got to win the conference. So Florida, Clemson? Uh. Florida State? Clemson. Okay. Clemson. Because, yeah, you got to win the conference, so it won't be Texas to be a bye because they picked Georgia. So uh, then who's the other – who's in the Big 12? Yeah, I think Big 12. Utah? It's Utah. Uh, it's split. Utah and Kansas State. Well, Kansas State's also on that list. They were the last team. I didn't mention them, but the most likely to regress. So yeah. the numbers say that Tennessee and Kansas State's going to suck and Alabama, but – Obviously not suck, but just not not big teams. So, yeah, Utah wins that conference. Okay. I mean, if they were the best team in the Big 12, that would obviously not be a surprise. It's probably They probably should be this year, right? Yeah, and that's what they were saying in here. You know, they have Utah. For example, Heather Dinich has Utah as the number three seed and projected Big 12 champion, but only ranked the Utes in the preseason number seven nationally. But, again, it's, it's those uh, conference bids, so to speak. The factor in here. Very interested to see how they run through that conference. And I mean, I would imagine it's just going to be business as usual because the Big 12 isn't that different than what the Pac 12 was doing stylistically. And Utah, you know, kind of plays a different way than the rest of the Pac 12. And I'd imagine they're still going to play a different way than most of the, the Big 12 in terms of defense and running the ball. Yeah. Yeah. And then getting out of the buys again, Notre Dame, shocker. Five out of the six people have them in the field. It just makes me angry. Um, again, we're a little biased, but um, it just feels like more of the same in some instances. And I do think Tennessee's got a really legitimate shot to be part of that 12. Notre Dame, I mean, of course, no conference tie-in. They play at Texas A&M to start the season. Is that, a, is that a scary game for them there? I mean, it's the first first game for Elko. Usually first co- first game for the coaches don't go well. There's a stat, you know, to fade the first-year coaches or first-time coaches at their school in game one that usually doesn't go well. Outside of that, the only team that looks right now ranked on their schedule, Louisville at 22 and Florida State at 16. At USC, November 30th, so we'll see what USC looks like by the time that game comes around. But I don't know who Notre Dame's quarterback is next year. Oh, yeah, it's true. Hartman's gone. Buckner's playing lacrosse. <laughs> I thought somebody transferred there, though. Oh, Riley Leonard. Oh, yeah, Riley Leonard, yes. Yeah. I was going to say, I knew yeah. they had a quarterback, okay. but I can't. Okay, that makes sense. And he was there. pretty good. He yeah. was good. Yeah. I mean, he's probably, 
at just as good, if not better, than Hartman, right? Perception wise, I, I mean, would say he's not just at throwing the ball, yeah. but like Raleigh has the running aspect of it too. I think he'll probably play himself into a decent draft position at Notre Dame. Yeah. Okay, so Notre Dame. I'll say with the schedule, they should go ten and two, and that's good enough to get in. So I'll, yeah. I'll agree with that. And you mentioned Texas earlier, and I, I, this should happen. They're they're six for six in terms of all these these writers picking them to be in the field, not a buy, but they they should be. I mean that that I don't I don't have a problem with that. So they have the ones who do rank Ole Miss and Missouri. Do they rank both Ole Miss and Missouri or either or? Um, no, both. Well, so, let's see. One, both of them. Two. Yeah, both of them. So they have Ole Miss, Missouri, Texas, and Georgia. All four are getting in and there. Bama. And Alabama. And Bama. So five SEC teams. Yeah. Now, that doesn't seem, you know, too far-fetched. But, like, to me, I feel like you got to pick either Missouri or Ole Miss. And maybe that's why Tennessee's not getting any love. Yeah. The day Kiffin successfully navigates the season, though, and, and wins a couple big games will be the first time. Agreed. Agreed. I, I'm, there's too much, there is too much love and hype headed their way right now, it feels like to me. And he's not won enough big games to reinforce that. But maybe this is the year. I don't know. Texas looking at their schedule at Michigan, September 7th. Michigan, you know, lost a lot, but that's still, a, you know, obviously a tricky game. Texas will probably be the slight favorites in that game. Oklahoma, October 12th, in their, you know, Red River rivalry. Red River rivalry, Red River. I can't get that ever. <laughs> Georgia in Texas. Florida in Texas, at Arkansas, Kentucky in Texas, and then at Texas A&M. So, yeah, I guess maybe they should be able to go at least 10-2 and two in that. 9-3. and three. Worst case scenario, but if you beat Georgia or Michigan, that probably carries a lot of weight. Okay. Only three of the six riders have Michigan making the field. I mean, that's that's the Harbaugh effect, right? I mean, they they have they still have a lot of talent. Well, yeah, but I told you they were only 128th in returning production. Oh, so is like, that right? Okay, I didn't they, catch I mean, it. I'm sure they still have a lot of talent on their roster. Kind of like Alabama still has a lot of talent on their roster, but like it's going to be right. unproven talent. And like, do you trust that Michigan coaching staff that was kind of leftovers? And, like, you know, the great assistants got brought to the NFL with them outside of Moore. Right. I would be surprised if Michigan made the playoff, honestly, just because the Big Ten, the Big Ten gets a little bit tougher. Ohio State should beat them. Like, surely to God, Penn State can – Yeah. Eh, never mind. Penn State's not going to beat them. Is it, anybody pick a Penn State to make the 12-team playoff, three of the six? <laughs> three. Oh, my God. Yeah. If I feel disrespected. Like, personally, I feel disrespected because I think Tennessee should be a a coin flip proposition to make the playoff. Like, I think Tennessee is going to make the playoff, but, like, I think everyone should view Tennessee as one of the teams that can make it, and it just comes down to maybe, like, one or two games. The fact that none of the six thought Tennessee could go 9-3 and three or 10-2 and two is kind of crazy to me. I agree. I agree. I'm not asking to be six for six. I'm not asking to be a first-round buy. But the fact that not one of six said this team can navigate this schedule and, like, we're a complete afterthought, 
this bothers me more than what McElroy said a couple weeks ago. You know, it's just one person. And, sure. You know, Alabama guy. Yeah. Eight and four, all that stuff. That bothered me. But this bothers me much more. I mean, to have a half a dozen uh, nationally known writers. And Chris Lowe's on there? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, Chris Lowe, I'm not calling him a Tennessee homer, but like, Chris Lowe should know the SEC and should know just how bad the quarterback position was last year. Right? Chris Lowe's got, I guess it can happen this way. He's got number six Oregon versus number 11 Michigan. So two teams from the same conference facing each other in the playoffs. Well, I would say it would be impossible almost to navigate it where it wouldn't with yeah. as many SEC and Big Ten teams that are going to be there. I, mean, I would say that you're going to have to have a conference matchup. I want to say I remember looking at this list in 2022 and us being very low on the returning production list because it's all new guys and like Hendon and everything. And, of course, that season worked out well. It was one of those situations that we talked about, Sam, where, like, you lose some of those guys, but you're not really losing anything. Like, you're upgrading. Tennessee brings back 46% of their offense, which is good for 107th in the country, and 58% of their defense, which is good for 66th in the country. Just if you want to know, like, where the units rank. To me, I don't think Tennessee is getting worse at a single position group next year from this year's roster to next year. Maybe, maybe the secondary, but I think the guys that you've brought in in the portal and the younger guys that you're bringing up can't be worse. Well, I gotta say, Sam, if we are worse in the secondary next year than we were this year, exactly, then that's a, that's a, that's a problem. So, yeah. like, I I refuse to believe that. Although I will, I will admit, in my bouts of homerness, I try to be self-aware, Bob. I did say the same exact thing last year about the Titans' offensive line <laughs> that there was no way it could be worse, and then it ended up being worse. So maybe the secondary can be worse. You know what's interesting, too, is I told you Clemson got three votes to be in the first-round buys. Uh-huh. They have no votes from any of the others to make the field. So either win the ACC or don't get in? Yeah, which is interesting because Florida State is like five of six. Five of the six riders have them in some sort of field. They have two. There's two that have them in the first-round buys and then three that have them in the, in the big dance. Um, I just find that interesting. Um, and I'm still – and I don't know what to expect with Florida State. I mean, they have consistency with Norvell still back, but um, – A lot of question marks. Definitely. Let's play some commercials. Let me get a drink of my water. We'll come back. It's the morning show here on Fan Run Radio.